let's put in a fake name, a fake professor. To our astonishment, we noticed that two thirds of the students decided to evaluate this fake professor, even though they had an option in the survey to say non-applicable or make a comment. So welcome to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined today by two guests to talk a little bit about student evaluations of teaching. And the title of this podcast, which will become apparent shortly, is A Curious Case of the Phantom Professor, which should get you interested. Uh, but by way of introduction to this topic, we know that student evaluations of teaching are pretty common, both in health professions, education and elsewhere. Uh, they're used to try and improve our teaching and learning programs. Uh, they're also used for promotion decisions, so they've got a formative and a summative purpose. But are they really any good? So to help me discuss that, I've got two guests. Uh, so Sebastian Bass, uh, out to Haho is a professor of medicine and health professions education and the associate director at the Center for Health Professions Education. And this is at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. How are you, Bath? Good, Vic. Thanks for having me. Yes, a pleasure. Uh, and also joined is uh, Lauren Germain, also uh, one of the key faculty with the Harvard Macy Institute, particularly for the assessment course. And she works at SUNY Upstate Medical University, where she's the director of the Office of Evaluation, Assessment and Research. She's also assistant professor for public health and preventive medicine and assistant professor of medicine. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And we're looking forward to the assessment course. Uh, no doubt lots of good things lined up. Is that right? Absolutely. We're looking forward to a great year. All right. Well, Sebastian, why don't you tell us a little bit about this study? It's a curious case of the Phantom Professor, Mindless Teaching Evaluations by Medical Students. And this was published in 2015 in Medical Education. Uh, well, take it from there, Bas. Tell us about this paper. This paper really um, came about when I was still at UCLA, where I worked for 24 years before I joined the Uniformed Services University. And at the time at UCLA, I was directing the office that monitors, that manages all the course and faculty evaluation. So our office oversaw a staff that actually created surveys to our students and they would uh, remind students to complete them. They would collect information for faculty when they were up for um, promotion and we would create reports. So I was in a, in a unique position to do some shenanigans, shenanigans in, in that area. So the paper came about uh, because of a funny thing that happened. Um, I was actually uh, up for promotion and I had to collect um, my student evaluation as part of my dossier. So I asked uh, my, one of our staff uh, people, um, would you please uh, retrieve all my, my uh, teaching evaluations because I need to add that to my dossier. So that was done and I just go over it. And then I come across this one evaluation about my teaching that was rather mediocre. And, uh, you know, I take pride in my teaching and I was looking into the details. And then I noticed that I was supposedly had taught a course called uh, Clinical Foundations at one of our affiliated universities, Drew University, where I'd never been. And uh, I noticed that most of the students there evaluated me and actually a few students even commented on my, my teaching. And one said, why is this helpful? So I was uh, very um, surprised that I would got that. And it turned out that it was just a clerical error. So, um, so that raised some really interesting questions in my mind, because um, as you see, my name, my last name is pretty complex and doesn't 
you know, it's not very common in the United States. So you would think that students would pick up on that and then say to themselves or think about themselves, well, wait a minute, we never had a person called Uitdagen in our class. Um, then I decided to do a little quality improvement study uh, with two PDSA cycles, essentially. Um, I decided with my with, with support of my staff, let's put in a fake name, a fake professor in one of the lectures that has many, many uh, lecturers. And that's very common in medical education, at least at the time, that gets basic science lectures that are often taught by dozens of professors. They come in for one lecture and then they leave. And then the common um, process is that students then, after the course is completed, then retroactively evaluate those many, many professors on their effectiveness of teaching. So um, I decided, uh, with help of my staff, to insert a, a fake name and see what happened. And uh, we actually had quite a fun because we wanted a name that was definitely distinct from our existing professors, but also had to be kind of neutral, like gender neutral. So we came up with all kinds of funny names. Uh, they are listed in, in the paper. And also some very generic lectures, uh, lecture names. Some titles of the lectures were very generic, like Introduction to Fertility or something like that. Well, we did it. We did it in two classes with permission of the uh, uh, course directors. And to our astonishment, we noticed that two-thirds of the students decided to evaluate this fake professor, even though they had an option in the survey to say non-applicable or make a comment. In fact, several of the students commented on this non-existing lecture, saying she went too fast or we need more time for her or... Um, so that raised all some interesting uh, questions and, and concerns. All right. So, so I'm just going to sort of pause there for a minute. So yeah, sure, you've sure. got these uh, evaluations of you, despite not actually giving any kind of talk or any kind of contribution to the course. Uh, and instead of just going, that's a clerical error, you thought, this is actually so interesting. And now you've put someone in, and I'm just quoting from the paper here, as you said, it's a name like Pat Turner or Chris Miller. So something that uh, could be either gender pretty uh, bland kind of name and they're giving talks like introduction lung disease and the students have actually given them evaluations even though this person doesn't exist and their lecture never happened and what's more they're not just giving them a number rating they're even giving a little bit of feedback about how they could do a better job this is right two-thirds of the students yeah that's right and actually the feedback and the comments really suggest they were confused that they confuse this, this non-existing person with an existing lecture, because otherwise what... So that actually already reveals there is a problem, with the, uh, particularly with the cognitive load that you um, impose on students by retrieving, right, by, going, by, by reflecting on things that happened weeks before uh, in deal manner in such a way that you can actually appraise it and can evaluate it. That's an impossible task we're asking students to do. I suspect Vasa's experience is not isolated, Lauren. You probably hear stories about this or have had same experiences, possibly with just clerical error, administrative errors, uh, and then getting information. And your sort of temptation is to discard it, whereas Vasa has gone deep on this. If I saw a mediocre evaluation of Vasa, I would have a lot of questions as well, see, having seen his teaching before. Yep. But this is a, definitely a step farther than most people go. I think there's a inclination to just drop that and not worry about that evaluation or to create a narrative around it to buffer it from the reality or to explain it away. And I think taking that extra step is really important when it comes to interpreting what this information means. 
Yeah, and we've done, this is almost like a, the type one error, isn't it, where this person doesn't exist and they've got an evaluation. Uh, but we've also got probably the other type of error where someone does exist and they get an evaluation that really isn't meant for them. And that's really problematic, isn't it? I mean, imagine if uh, your promotion had been denied because of this uh, mediocre evaluation from the phantom lecture you did not give. Yeah, that would be that would be sad, but it's certainly a possibility. We are laughing about it, but um, you know, important decisions are made based on this information, and you really have to wonder what is the validity of this information. Mm. What evidence do we have that really supports making these important decisions, either in terms of faculty promotions or by making big changes in the course because students evaluate it in a certain way. What is the validity evidence? It all boils down to that. Lisa, and I think about context too, right? So medical students are exceptionally busy people. And not only are we adding to their cognitive load, but we're also adding to the amount of things that they have to do. So um, I know Boss has talked about the uh, title, that mindless choice, and I'll let him speak yeah, to that in a minute. Yeah. but. But I do think that we're asking very busy people who are learning a lot of things at once to do something additional and then mm -hmm. relying on that to make high stakes decisions in some cases. And I think when you say it that way, that it's easy to see the holes. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Uh, and maybe if you go, you might speak to the mindless in a minute, uh, Sebastian, but I'm going to actually quote from your paper here because I think you've put it really nicely. Three risk factors that may encourage mindless evaluation practices. One, the cognitively taxing nature of student evaluations of teaching, if you think about the numbers of people that are being asked to evaluate, the lack of perceived impact on the curriculum, and I think that is a bit of like, well, nothing's going to change. Why would I be bothered putting some thought into this? And then finally, the degree to which the evaluation task is experienced as just another routine chore. And, uh, you know, there is, I think, um, in, in a well-intentioned wish to engage students in their learning and the improvement of their learning, uh, sometimes we do just give them a lot of jobs to do. Yeah, all right. Well, tell us, uh, Bas, uh, mindless uh, or not, and uh, more on that. Well, I really regret we put that in the title. Uh, the word mindless, um, just for the reasons we just talked about. You can't blame students that they make mistakes in these uh, in these evaluations, or that they are cannot take they cannot do, give a due diligence because they're asked to do it so many times. Uh, it, it's you know we're asking something impossible for our students. So I regret that we put the word mindless in uh, in in our title. Let me also tell you a little bit more of the concept of the paper. So it was originally submitted to RIME, the Research in Medical Education Conference of the AMC meeting. It was quickly rejected uh, for the right reasons, because this is not research. This is typical quality improvement. So we resubmitted it to medical education, and it was accepted there um, for publication. But then Kevin Eva, the editor, asked if he would mind waiting a year and a half with the publication because then he could include it in a special anniversary issue of medical education. That was kind of a humorous uh, issue of, and sort of tongue-in-cheek. And he, he thought that this would fit uh, very nicely in that issue. But he asked us to pepper it a little bit more with humor. So we added these little sentences in and then, you know, probably slightly inappropriate for a, for a report like this. But then... Kevin changed his mind and he said, no, let's not wait uh, and let's just publish it now with all that humor in it. So um, 
uh, that might explain some of the almost borderline inappropriate things that I put in there, like about the uh, attractiveness of the Swedish model. I would have never had done, said that in a, in a, in a regular paper. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, it makes maybe the paper more amusing. But that's sort of the history of it. Um, Boss, that piece about the attractiveness of the professor has struck me, though, um, partially because of, of sort of its its unique phrasing, but also partially because it, it's reinforced by a paper from the 90s that suggests that in the first 30 seconds of silent video, uh, students develop their perceptions of faculty, which are correlated with their end of semester evaluations. So there is something to the way a person appears uh, that has been shown to be connected with how they're evaluated. So I, I do think that that's something to consider. I'm going to read the line here because it is, I agree. I think this is, uh, it might seem like it's problematic at one level, but it's important. So uh, the following year, we repeated this process, um, but also included a small portrait of an attractive young model who, perhaps regretfully, did not resemble any of our faculty members. So yeah, it is a bit funny. And I see, I hear your sideline story there about how things go in. But um, Lauren's point is really important. We know evaluations have got a lot of biases at play and whether we should include photos, it just reminds us of how the orchestra gets selected, whether they have the blind evaluations with the screen so they can't see the gender of the person playing the piece has made a dramatic difference to the gender balance of the uh, orchestra uh, recruitment. So this may be something at play. Yeah, Sebastian, what do you think? No, absolutely. And, and actually... Um when you look at students' evaluations and their comments in particular, it really is striking how students comment differently on female professors and male professors. And I'm not the only one observed it. That's, that's very well known. So students tend to comment more on a female's appearance or their clothing or I've seen their socks and their shoes and their hair than they would on, on male professors. And that's is kind of concerning, disconcerting. Um, and then also uh, another, uh, someone actually looked at um, a website called Rate My Professors, which is a, um, I don't know if it still exists, but there was a time where everyone could just comment on any professor. Uh, it was sort of the uh, Angie's list of professors in the United States. Um, and he looked at thousands and thousands of comments, I think maybe even millions of comments, and noticed that um, uh, male professors are often commented on being brilliant, awesome, and knowledgeable. And female comments were sometimes exhibiting the same behavior as bossy, annoying, or here you go, ugly. Um, and that is really, uh, that should give us some pause about uh, the, the bias that is um, um, plaguing uh, the student evaluations of teachers, uh, even among medical students. We have all implicit biases. Boss, that website, included for some time a rating of chili peppers to encourage students to rate the attractiveness of the faculty. So yeah, that it was part of their system, which is, yeah. is really interesting and problematic when you think about the context that that was being asked of students at the same time that they were being asked to publicly rate faculty. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this obviously isn't confined to problems with student evaluations of teaching. Clearly, this is a societal issue, but it's reflected uh, in how this plays out in health professions education. And I guess um, back to our point, what does it mean that we do about it? So I think we've pointed out quite a few problems here. We know that we're maybe not doing a good job of setting them up for success. We also know that there are other 
implicit biases at play. Uh, and perhaps one we haven't talked about yet, uh, Bas, is whether the students like it. How well related is that to how good the teaching is? Comments on that. That is exactly the crucial question. So how, do students learn more from the professors they rate highly? That's the basic validity question. And there is actually a wonderful study that came out uh, only a few years ago. Um, let me pull it up. And I only have to read the title to you. Um, and the final um, sentence of the abstract. The title reads, Meta-Analysis of Faculty's Teaching Effectiveness, colon, Student Evaluation of Teaching Ratings and Student Learning are Not Related. It was a huge uh, meta-analysis of dozens and dozens of studies, and they found no relationship between student evaluations and learning outcomes. And um, so um, the last sentence actually says, these findings suggest that institutions focused on student learning and career success may want to abandon student evaluation of teaching ratings as a measure of faculty's teaching effectiveness. So they go all the way down. And in fact, some people go so far as to say, um, these student evaluations of teaching actually encourages bad teaching uh, because mm -hmm. faculty start playing the game. They, they know the game. They actually know how to get good. They start discovering ways to get good evaluations that are not necessarily embodying good teaching practices. Um, so, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, things that are fun, engaging, easy arguably the you know just talk where people just have to sit there and do nothing uh, may be much better evaluated than something where people have to do a little bit of work it sounds like these student evaluations of teaching may only be useful as an indicator of the professionalism of the medical students there's an interesting uh, paper that came out recently called um, unbiased reliable and valid student evaluations can still be unfair um, and they did a computational simulation which is, it's an interesting paper to read, and they still found um, problems with sort of effectiveness related to perception. Uh, it's, it's a fun and interesting read that I highly recommend. Yeah, and just for the Harvard Macy uh, podcast listeners, I will extract the references from Lauren and Bass for these papers, and I'll put them in our uh, episode description so that you can read them uh, in a bit more detail if you like. Uh, yes, Bass, what do you think of all that? Well, well, Vic, you mentioned the word easy. So students love it when you spoon feed information to them in lectures. And, and it makes total sense. You start a topic, you talk about it, you nicely end it, and then begin with the next topic. Students rate that very highly. But there's some interesting work done in cognitive psychology, particularly by two professors at UCLA, Elizabeth and Robert Bjork. And they introduced the concept of desired, desirable difficulties where you actually on purpose make it a little bit difficult to learn, like by interweaving, starting a topic, stopping halfway, introducing a new topic, and then coming back to the first topic and then continuing with the second topic. That may sound chaotic and doesn't make sense, but it actually improves uh, long-term retention and it improves transfer of knowledge. Uh, students don't like that. Uh, flipped classroom is another uh, example. Uh, students originally, originally rated it very poorly because it was way too much work. So again, easy, easy is not always good. It usually is not good. 
Yeah, and I'm reminded uh, lots of references from that book, Make It Stick, which talks about the desirable difficulties and and uh, how much more effective that is for learning, but how it's not necessarily liked because it is hard. Turns out learning is hard and our brains need to do work in order for it to be effective. So uh, we all know when you look back on your own educational experiences during your life, starting in grade school, secondary school and universities, Sometimes it takes decades for you to realize how good a particular teacher was. Uh, at the time, you might find it confusing or intimidating or not working, but only later when you actually have a experience that transfer of learning or retention or something like that weighs in de- decades later, then you realize how good a teacher was. Mm, so yes. it's not always in the moment. It sometimes takes a long time. Yeah, and that is not when those professors get their evaluations many years later. Uh, All right, so I think we've outlined the problem here. Uh, We've got these student evaluations of teaching that are unreliable, uh, not valid, uh, plagued by the way that we ask students to do them, plagued by uh, the vagaries of cultural biases and society, um, unconscious biases, and also not very well related to whether teaching is any good. So it seems like it's not that good for our formative feedback. It seems it's uh, very problematic for our summative uh, uh, evaluation of professors and their promotion decisions. So what do we do? Um, all right, Bas, you go first, and then I'm sure Lauren's got a few thoughts on this. Well, in, in, the, in the paper, I describe a potential alternative method where you prospectively ask a small group of students to evaluate a course, not just the lectures, but all the experiences that they have within a course. Um, and then uh, you actually promote um, giving professional feedback to another professional. That's another skill that you might, uh, might uh, improve. And then also there is this interesting way of instead of asking everyone their opinion, there's this called uh, um, uh, the prediction-based method where you ask someone, what do you think other people think about this this course? Uh, That actually comes from political science when they did polling uh, ahead of an election. When you ask, so who do you think will be elected instead of who are you uh, uh, voting for? Then you, you need fewer people to actually get an, uh, an, uh, an equally reliable prediction or, or a measure than uh, asking everyone. So, so uh, engaging students actively in an interesting way, a small set of students uh, pr- pr- prospectively um, in that way might be an alternative uh, to asking everyone all the time to ask evaluate to evaluate everyone. Mm, That's our so a thinner but deeper slice for our sampling, as it were, and and arguably a little bit more authentic engagement of students, which is uh, getting them to take a bit of responsibility rather than just throw an opinion around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds and like it makes sense. Lauren, uh, do you like that idea and or have you seen this work in action elsewhere? I do. Um, I We reduced the number of evaluations that any one student receives by pulling a random sample of the class. Actually, it's a stratified random sample by scores because there was some data that suggested that perhaps uh, performance of the student was correlated with perception. Um, So we tried that. And one of the challenges has been that because the sample is smaller for any individual evaluation, it's been difficult to get buy-in across the board from faculty that they feel that the feedback is representative 
despite the sort of random stratified sample and trying to do everything we can on our end to um, promote that, uh, still they see the N and feel like it can't possibly represent the group. So that's been an interesting challenge as we've tried to reduce the burden on students. Uh, I'm trained in qual methods, so I love a good focus group and, and find them to be incredibly useful especially if the facilitator has some familiarity with what folks teach and, and being really thoughtful about who it is that facilitates and the student perception of their role and the trust between the student and the facilitator. I think those can be incredibly useful. Um, there's a great paper out of Norway, and I'll send you the citation, um, on dialogue-based methods that I think it ha- has some promise. It's difficult to do at scale. Yeah, I'm not surprised the dialogue-based methods come from Scandinavia or at least... Uh... Europe, because we know that that uh, qualitative approach, it it is much more resource intensive, but you're right, you can really get the depth that you're trying to get out of things. Whereas the sort of like it item rating scales, um, I'm not too surprised that faculty worry about the confidence intervals around those uh, and, and really the utility of them. Maybe one of the really sharp focuses here is trying to separate out this evaluation process for the formative and the summative purpose because it seems to me they're a little bit at odds this trying to improve the teaching is a little bit different to the evaluation of whether this person should get promoted on the basis of good teaching um did you want to speak to that maybe bass first well that's an excellent point um um you know the stakes are obviously much lower when you um help someone improve their course and um mistakes or biases or um, misperceptions have much less severe consequences when in in the context of improving of course and making a promotion decision so um, that that's an excellent point um, um, to yeah to be aware of how again how is the information being u- being used and, yeah exactly yeah. a lot more data gets collected than is used and yeah. um, sometimes its purpose isn't clear Lauren have you had uh, um, thoughtful Uh, trying to tease these two purposes apart? It won't surprise you coming from the systems approach to assessment course that I'm going to say I think who is trying to improve something and why are very important. So at the formative feedback space or in the formative feedback space, uh, faculty who are requesting that feedback themselves is often received differently than the system or someone from central administration requesting that information. Students also have the opportunity to see if any of it is put into action. It's a little bit easier to do and there's less administrative steps to get there. Timing is incredibly important, of course. I've had some folks who've tried to collect their own formative feedback do it two weeks before the end of the course. And that's a little unfortunate because they can, it's, it's basically summative at that point. Um, so I think who is doing it and, and the why they're looking to do it and being explicit about that with learners is very important to the system as a whole and how it functions. And then I think the larger context around what are these, I say forms, but what are these processes really for? And I'm not sure the learners are thinking about our promotion. And I think that they have a very targeted approach to their own learning that they're thinking about and, and takes it certain type of person to choose to pay it forward, Mm. which is really what you do at the summative moment. So I think who, why, when are all really important questions 
Yeah, and that that point about people seeking their own feedback really gets at that uh, second point in the, in the paper about the lack of perceived impact on the curriculum. Whereas if you get the idea this person is really trying to improve, oh, actually, well, they've given me some of their time. I guess I'll try and do that. All right, well, as we try and bring this conversation to a close, I really want to get granular for our listeners here because I, I suspect there's sort of two types of listeners. One is the uh, teachers who are trying to do a pretty good job and who maybe are subjected to some of these promotion processes. And then the second group are the people in charge of evaluation, maybe such as the two I'm talking to here. So for the people kind of stuck in this system, uh, how would you suggest they navigate getting some useful student evaluation of their teaching to get better? Well, one thing that comes to mind, um, to my mind, is... um, I encourage direct interaction between the teachers and the students, like using a qualitative approach, maybe with a focus group. Why not have a course director sit in on that um, and uh, and maybe already explains uh, how some of the things can be changed or can be not changed, uh, you know. Um, so a more interactive, collaborative, professional way of talking to each other, not anonymous. It's another thing that really bugs me. Uh, why does everything have to be anonymous? Um so um, that might be an, you know, an approach that is maybe more productive in the long end. Uh, yeah, Laura, what do you take, think? Yeah, taking a few minutes to reflect on teaching process, even within teaching sessions or having separate sessions where you ask people to give useful advice. Uh, similar for you, Lauren, would that be your advice to such a person stuck in the system? I think when you're stuck in the system, there's a lot of options. One is to sort of collect evidence of your teaching. So the K-12 education system has a lot to teach us in the med ed space. And one thing that they teach is the benefit of a teaching portfolio, right? So you have your learner's feedback. You also have examples of your work that allow another person to come in and, and sort of understand you as an educator. But I think a nice piece of that is also peer review. Um, I think program or, pro- or course director review is wonderful too. Um, speaking as a person who is both about to be up for promotion and directs the evaluation system in my institution, um, a byproduct of peer review is, is sharing a framework about what is quality teaching. So the person who is using a rubric to review you is also looking at explicit criteria about what the system says makes for good teaching. And I think that clarity of expectation is really useful across your system. Yeah, so inviting some actual useful conversations about uh, what what do we think of our teaching and what do we think good looks like, which sometimes uh, fails to be articulated in the rapid rush to tick a box about whether good is uh, happening or not. All right, so this is uh, very interesting and best wishes with your promotion, by the way. Uh, but I think we've we've got some food for thought here about how we can get these meaningful conversations going about performance, uh, how we can still get some robust portfolios. Um, little terminology highlight there, K through 12 is understood rather well in the US. That's a terminology that in Australia would just mean school, i.e. primary school Sorry. and secondary school. That's all right, just uh, for our various global listeners. Uh, but you're right, I think we often feel like we're inventing things in health professions education and of course that's not the case there is a much broader educational literature and practice that we can help to draw on 
All right. Well, I think this is is good. I think uh, the mindlessness or otherwise, however humorously that was intended, is actually thoughtful. And I don't think we're just blaming the students for that. I think we've got some system problems that set them up for failure and that maybe set us up for failure in terms of how useful these student evaluations of teaching are. I think, though, we've talked a fair bit about... uh, you know, are there other ways of doing that? And um, I think thinking thoughtfully about how we engage students in improving the teaching and learning. I just want to say um, evaluating clinical teachers is a whole different ballpark, right? So because then you establish a one-on-one relationship. So all what we talked about does not necessarily apply to evaluating someone who taught you in a clinic. Uh, and then also, you know, lectures are on the way out. Um, they become online. So the landscape is changing dramatically and hopefully accordingly the way we evaluate our, our, our programs also will change. So just, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that sounds like um, take two of this podcast, how we do evaluations of clinical teachers, uh, which I agree. I've got some similarities, but also some important differences. And, uh, and your point about sampling becomes even more when we move to a world where there's more small group interactive sessions. And a lot of our teaching isn't with these uh, large subjects taught by multiple people. And the meta research, I think, shows that it's people describing or evaluating how other people do things. That's the problem. Um, And also an incredible strength in the system. The papers about faculty evaluations or assessments of learners also show biases and flaws. And I think it's important in our system to recognize that humans have lenses through which they view the world and one another. And there's always going to be a range of limitations to that, but there's also incredible richness and depth that can be incredibly useful to learners of all stages. And I think that it's important that we strengthen the system, but that we do it without losing some of the richness that comes from humans supporting one another, sort of the base function of humans supporting one another becoming wonderful at what they do yeah absolutely feedback is useful we just have to know what we're doing with it and what lenses we look at it from all right well this has just been a wonderful conversation uh and just as a reminder for our listeners we've used as our departure point uh, a lovely and lightly written paper called a curious case of the phantom professor mindless teaching evaluations by medical students Uh, but we've also discussed a range of other papers which i will link to in our episode description but i just want to thank you both for shining a light on a really important topic and i think giving some pretty practical guidance for those of us who are involved in student evaluations of teaching thank you so much that was fun thank you thank you this is wonderful all right victoria brazel signing off for the harvard macy institute podcast